0: Hi, just a heads up before we start, there's a brief discussion of suicide in this episode. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, information and resources are available at www.wannotalkaboutit.com. That's www.wannotalkaboutit.com.
1: Welcome back to Episode 4 of Waco, American Apocalypse, the companion podcast series. With me again today is Lee Hancock.
0: Waco was live on television over everybody's lunch hour. You could watch this thing unfold from the very beginning, uh, from February 28th. When all of a sudden, you know, people getting home from church or waking up or whatever they were doing, all of a sudden they were seeing breaking news bulletins with this shootout live on television in a way that no police action, no shootout had ever been recorded, and actually no police action had ever seen this kind of violent response from a group. So you saw that, and then over your lunch hour, 51 days later, you could watch as this building went up in flames with 80 people inside. So it wasn't just a trauma for the people that were involved or who witnessed it firsthand. It was a trauma for the entire country. And it was a story that was so complicated; it was hard to get arms around, and very quickly, uh, elements of the story, you know, were um, adopted or hijacked, if you will, by different groups who wanted to use the Davinians as poster children, or look at the way the FBI had handled this. Um, that didn't pay enough attention to the group's religious belief system. So you had these different groups that immediately leapt in. The NRA very quickly came in. Other gun groups came in. Um, Tax protesters. You know, there was enough that was traumatic and was unresolved and enough questions around it and the feeling that the feds were not being... Forthcoming about why they did what they did, how they handled it, and particularly how they made mistakes.
1: It's almost like a Rorschach inkblot where whatever you want to see in it based on your political persuasion, you are able to see. You can draw conclusions about uh, you know, the right to bear arms. You can draw conclusions about the right to worship God as you want. You can draw conclusions about the federal government. And people look at, at Waco and draw these conclusions. And then from Waco, there's a direct link on to Oklahoma City. Two years later, April 19th, um and you articulate this you know, beautifully in the film, but r- summarize it again briefly for us here so we understand the connections between Oklahoma and Waco.
0: One of the people that came in early April to uh, see what was happening, to protest, uh, was Tim McVeigh, who was an, an Army veteran who had gotten increasingly interested. In uh, white supremacist beliefs, and very concerned that the feds were going to take away guns, that they were going to come and do um, assaults, much like what happened in Waco, that this was going to happen elsewhere. And then, after uh, the, the fire happened on April 19th, McVeigh was absolutely convinced that something needed to happen to pay back or teach the government a lesson. And if it was done well enough, it might touch off a revolution. He picked out the federal building in Oklahoma City as a site to do that, in part because he thought that um, some of the ATF agents who were housed in that building had helped plan the raid there. He also saw Oklahoma City as important because that's where Bob Ricks was headquartered. Bob Ricks, who in Waco was the chief spokesman Uh, For much of the stage, he did a lot of the morning briefings.
1: Now let's hear from Bob Ricks, who's joining us to talk about the lasting impact of Waco and how it's influenced what happened in Oklahoma City. How much does this story haunt you? How frequently do you think of Waco? Um, You know, how much does it enter your consciousness? Or have you also, you know, had to sort of put it in the rear view? What's your your emotional connection?
2: Well, it, it, uh, it's one, obviously, I can't dwell on. It, it's, um, it, it's not healthy to continue to dwell on it, but it sometimes will, will come back uh, at odd times. Uh, I've gone back to, uh, to where the, uh, uh, the Branch Davidian compound was located on two occasions. The first time was about 10 years afterward. It took me that long to, to do it. Uh, and then I just went back this last, last year. To me, as you were saying, it's kind of part of the healing process to, to not to try to, to suppress it, but to, to dress it, that it, it is still there, it is very real, it affected people's lives, it caused the loss of life, uh, it, it affected me, it affected my career, it affected the, the FBI. Uh, so it was a, one of the most traumatic, dramatic uh, events that that I've ever experienced, as well as in also the FBI.
1: In, in many ways, although it was secondhand, you know, I was a kid growing up in Dallas, Texas, and and, and you know was was a was a kid or you know young man at the time, mm-hmm. and it was this iconic event that happened, and I hope, like you said on a greater cultural level the retelling of this story helps us process it and understand who we are and what these events mean to us and and really with the intention of so that this kind of so that history doesn't repeat itself
2: yeah that's that's i think that's true as well though um when when i saw the theories of what had actually transpired such as we we trapped the people in there. We executed the people. Uh, we set the fires. All of those theories, if they were true, uh, one really could not defend our government. In fact, I think it'd be worthy of overthrowing a government that would do such a thing. And for us not to defend ourselves and explain that we were just people, we got we got caught. We got caught after the ATF raid in in a in a dilemma that that I don't know still to the day. I, I try to come up with solutions that could have ended this peacefully and it still to the to this day I can't come up with ones that, that would end this in a peaceful manner. So you, you had you had uh, you had human beings who were doing their best and and there was no one of ill will in that whole process. Everyone in there was trying to resolve this peacefully. What can we do to end this, to get this over with, to save the children? And what, what is the the, the least uh, uh, least uh, uh, oppressive manner that we can try to carry this out, but still at the same time force the people to eventually come out? What, what can we do to end this, but to, and and again the, the whole time of the standoff we never fired one shot during the entire standoff uh, we even had our agents at the end that were risking their own life going in the building and pulling people out that were still firing at us and not that we're I'm trying to say okay don't blame me blame them it's just that if if I could have people understand the picture is that you you had hundreds of people who were working every day, giving everything that they had, trying, trying to resol- resolve this incident peacefully. But it, it was an incident that we had one person that was in control and made the decision that none of his followers g- were going to come out, that they were going to be totally loyal to him to the very end. And that's why it was called the Ranch Apocalypse. He wanted to bring this down to one magnificent end, and he believed that that would be viewed as a tribute to him that everyone was willing to give up their lives in uh, in 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 support of him and almost
1: in worship of him as well well he manifested his own prophecy in the end he forced it to come into the world and to happen absolutely what are the falsehoods rumors conspiracy theories that you would like to categorically lay to rest you know what is what are, what what would you like the world to know hey here's what people say here's what the truth is
2: yeah you know i've i've heard so many i don't know that i can address them all but uh but some of the most uh patently uh false ones are that the fbi started the fire uh we we uh, we did not start the fire we 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 had our our uh uh, airplane overhead called the night stalker. It was circling and it was taking pictures the whole time. Uh, we also had listening devices that they were rudimentary. Uh, uh, we didn't have live transmissions of the information at the time, but, uh, following review, uh, we, we had statements in there, you know, uh, light it up. Uh, is it lit yet? We need more fuel oil to keep the fire going. Uh, our our airplane showed that they had three simultaneous spots where uh, the building was lit. Uh, that that we had in fact carried out executions of those inside. All all totally false. Uh, the The executions were carried carried out. Uh, by David Koresh and his followers, some of the mothers wanted to bring their children out, but they were not allowed to because those were David Koresh's children, and they were going to die with him. Uh, the main thing that I want want to say is that we did everything in our power not to cause the fire, and and to try to prevent that from from occurring, and use the 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 least amount of pressure that we could, which was just an insertion of tear gas, which is probably going to occur somewhere in the United States today. It, it, is, it is a standard procedure. Uh, we used it regularly at, at the, the Edmond Police Department where I was chief of police after my service here. And it's used by, by police throughout the country. Uh, but these were not criminals. These were devout religious people who were totally devoted to their cause. They they believed greatly uh, in in the in the uh, the teachings of David Koresh and uh, and the religious beliefs that, that he he, uh, he prophesied about the end times that were coming and that he was going to usher in the end times. And this what was happening, and we actually helped him to fulfill what he was preaching that he was the you know the second coming that he was going to usher in the end times and that it was going to be a great battle uh with the federal government and all this did actually come true i mean it was it it, in that respect it was somewhat amazing that uh, a lot of what he prophesied
1: did did uh eventuate by the time you know bodies are exhumed and, and forensic work is done how does David Koresh die in the end? In the end, David Koresh was shot between the eyes. I
2: personally have a belief that he was... Sh- David Koresh was shot with a rifle, and and uh, the, the the coroner's office ruled it a suicide, but I've never seen anyone take a rifle and shoot themselves between the eyes. I mean, people have k- committed suicide many times with rifles, but I've never seen them take it and and... Fire between the eyes. In fact, it's very awkward. Steve Snyder, my personal belief is, is shot David Koresh uh, between the eyes and then killed himself. I also believe that uh, we we believed it was going to be like a Jim Jones situation where Jim Jones had everybody commit suicide and then he he was saying, okay, now we've had that. And they we've proved our point. Uh, he was not going to commit suicide. He was forced to commit suicide. And I believe some of that perhaps may have occurred here that, uh, a lot of our psychologists believe that, that David Koresh would have everybody kill themselves and then he would walk out and be the hero. And, uh, I believe my personal belief is Steve Snyder says that's not going to happen. After he viewed all the events that had transpired, loss of his wife, a, a child, uh, uh, his whole life dedicated to this, and now everybody was dying, and and David Koresh was going to walk out. I, I think Steve Snyder said that's not acceptable, and and killed him, and then
1: killed himself. Tell us. Why the hell are we still talking about this story 30 years later? What is it about the kind of cultural fascination with this story that we're still wrestling with it? I, I think it uh,
2: was such a dramatic event that uh, the way it was uh, ended and also the conspiracy theories that, that sprang up uh, surrounding both Oklahoma City and Waco. The conspiracy theories were not challenged by the FBI. They were allowed to linger and fester and uh, actually grow when some of them were just so uh, preposterous that uh, uh, that they should have been shot down. But the FBI thought better not, not to say anything. And as a result, I think there's still questions that, uh, that arise to this day about what actually happened at Waco and Oklahoma City to
1: some degree. So you bring up a couple of fascinating points that I'd like to explore a little bit further. One is this legacy of conspiracy theories and... Uh, fear, I guess, of a sort of deep state and and government overreach, and there is this legacy from Waco to Oklahoma City, the Oklahoma City bombing, to all the way through January 6th and and the kind of current culture. Um, Why do you think that, what exactly produced the the, the sort of, the the, the speculative conspiracy theories, and why has this gripped the American public so much? i think what what produced it
2: was this uh uh underground current there that there was this deep state that uh uh that there was an inherent uh, distrust of the government and what the government was saying uh that there were factions within the government that were out to suppress First Amendment, Second Amendment rights, uh, that we were en route to a totalitarian system, and that this was just one of the initial steps that the government was taking to clamp down on, on religious uh, freedoms and, and freedom to, uh, to bear arms. Uh, and these are all hot button uh, items, obviously, that are very emotional amongst uh, many people. Because the FBI did not respond with what the facts were, uh, those became actually, in some cases, in some areas, as, as taken as gospel that, that
1: that's what actually occurred, which was just so far-fetched, it was not believable. Why do you think the FBI didn't shoot down the, you know, speculations and conspiracies around this? What was, what was the thinking institutionally?
2: I think institutionally, they just wanted it to go away. You had, you had a change in leadership. You had a new director that had come on board, uh, and his hope was that the Waco would not be tied to him. Just just let it be blamed on the prior administration, and let's go forward and act like it didn't occur. But it did occur,
1: uh, and it was a a, a big moment in, in U.S. history that still lingers it's an interesting place that you're in, right? Like on the one hand, there is chatter that, hey, maybe something's coming. Maybe there are going to be reprisals from Waco. And yet at the same time, you're um, muzzled in your ability to like make a public response uh, mm-hmm. to that. So what's that like for you? You know, particularly being the voice in the face of this.
2: Yeah, it, it was extremely frustrating uh, because it was very real in this part of the country. I think You know, sometimes uh, people live in that ivory tower back in Washington, D.C., New York uh, area, and they think that whatever is of importance there uh, is what is important to the rest of the country. Uh, But, uh, you know, issues remain important in Washington, D.C. for about two weeks normally, and then, then something other dramatic issue takes its place. But out here, uh, the events in Waco were still very heated. Uh, your 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 right-wing extremist groups were still very uh, emotional and, and very vociferous in their discussions about what had taken place, and this this was the first steps of uh, of a totalitarian uh, takeover by the government that you know wanted to suppress everyone's freedoms. Uh, so it, it was. It really reached its peak more about the first year anniversary. Uh, One example, I had Janet Reno visit my office in Oklahoma City. I was the agent in charge of of the Oklahoma City FBI office. And uh, she asked for general questions from agents and and others. And and I raised the issue. I said, I know it's not a a big issue in Washington, D.C., but it is a huge issue here in the Oklahoma City and, and Midwest, uh, the events that occurred at Waco, and there's so many false theories out there that, uh, you know this claiming that the government executed these people, it's such an emotional issue that I believe the government should respond. And her response was that, I don't think people care about Waco anymore. And I think that we shouldn't discuss it. So I, I had no choice but to continue the silence uh, that that surrounded what we had done at Waco, which I thought was the wrong approach.
1: Well, it's interesting the disconnect, and and I think you see that. Uh, you know, you're we're seeing that in a profound way in this country now. The divisions in this country and the lack of awareness of different perspectives. I I agree. Uh, that's but that's very very true. Still today. So let's cut all the way to today and. When the uprising at the Capitol January 6th is happening, how much, is, how much do you feel like the legacy of Waco, Oklahoma City, how much does that current of, of right-wing um, extremist fear, anger, paranoia, whatever you want to call it, how much does that feed into the events of January 6th? And, and, and is this a, a, a cultural stream that, we're, that we saw, you know, the dam finally bursting there?
2: Yeah, you know, I I didn't put the two together to be honest, and, and I still don't. Uh, uh, and and a lot of it is because of of the events that occurred. the The events that transpired at the Oklahoma City bombing were by were by a very small handful of people. Uh, they they were not organized groups at all. In fact, they belonged to no organization. And and what I what I saw at, at the Capitol was more of uh, there were a lot of loose individuals there that just joined into the fracas and wanted to participate and felt they were drawn to it. But then you had uh, groups such as the Proud Boys and others such as that, that were using it to carry out their message. And it had been something that they had planned uh, for a period of time. So uh, to me, it, it it wasn't the same
1: type of scenario that that uh, we witnessed at Oklahoma City. What is the institutional legacy of this? That is to say, what is the impact on um, federal law enforcement, whether it be the ATF or the FBI? Like what is the net effect of Waco? How does it change? How does it affect or change? And does it affect or change the bureau itself? And what is the the lasting institutional change?
2: you know, in, in some respects, as, as I as I somewhat indicated, uh, uh, the bureau was was slow to even address it. In fact, uh, normally we do an after-action review on on any major uh, uh, assault that we uh, take, even a, a SWAT team action, which uh, which I usually headed up any time we deployed our SWAT team. We would always sit down afterwards and do do an after action review just to see how the plan uh, was was drafted and was it executed properly and where were the deficiencies and there always are deficiencies and uh, we couldn't get the headquarters, our headquarters to actually do that took over a year. And they really, it was a very, uh, we went and met at at Quantico for one afternoon, uh, which is unbelievable for a, a, an event of that magnitude uh and just did a cursory overview of, of what had happened and it was clear to me that there was no interest in doing a, a thorough uh, review from from a, a tactical point of view the the other ones are all trying to be uh looking at, at fault finding and that's not what we do in after-action reports. We're trying to say, okay, not. Our, we, we, we do look at where faults occur, but what can we do to make it stronger? Even on highly successful uh, uh, raids that we've taken, there's always something you can improve on. It's usually in the communication side. That's always where we're deficient. Uh, but there, there are other things about command and control and how, how could this have been executed better? What could we have done in Waco maybe that uh, we could have had a different result? Uh but those
1: reviews were never done. It sounds like there was this an understandable, frankly, hey, this is a black eye for the Bureau. Let's just put it in the rearview mirror right. and hopefully this will go away if we put our heads in the sand.
2: I I think that's exactly what the approach was was just the new administration came in and didn't want to be tagged uh, with what had happened at Waco and said, uh, you can blame the FBI, but don't blame me because I wasn't there.
1: Well, I'm very grateful for your time, your openness, your candor and your service, frankly. And it's a, it's been a pleasure and an honor to get to know you. And I hope that we have the chance to, uh, do some press interviews when the time comes together. All right, Bob, take care. Take care. When I asked Ricks if he saw a connection between Waco and January 6th, Lee, he was quick to point out the ways in which they were different. But I think for many people, the events of Waco are a defining moment, the beginning of a new strain of distrust of government and, like Ricks was saying, the start of many of the unfounded conspiracy theories that persist today. What do you think? Do you see a connection between Waco and January 6th? Absolutely.
0: And and to follow the pass from 1993 to January 6th, you had in Columbine, literally, they had planned to do their attack on their high school on April 19th. The only reason why they didn't is they felt like they needed more ammunition. But they wanted to choose that date because that was the date that McVeigh had chosen, and that was when Waco had happened. Eric Rudolph Uh, the Olympic bomber in Atlanta who bombed uh, Centennial Park in Atlanta in 1996. In 1997, he also attacked a gay bar in Atlanta and sent a message to the police while he was on the run, and he said he was going to use April 19, 1993, as his code so when he was in contact with the authorities or the media, they would know it was him. You had other groups that seized on this and were inspired by it. You had the Bundys, who first were in Oregon with the... The standoff in Oregon, also the standoff in Nevada. One of the reasons why so many so many people rallied to their side with heavy heavy armaments was they were determined that they were not going to let the feds do to them what had happened in Waco. So, you know, people saw this as both. You know, a tragedy that could have been prevented an unfinished business that they were not going to let happen again. And these these groups um, went from marginal, even fringe groups to with the rise of the Internet and social media, they were able to talk to each other and spread their information, you know, where much of what is thought about Waco. If history is what's remembered, as some people say, what people remember about Waco often has more to do with conspiracy theories than the actual facts of what happened.
1: To to, to bring it back sort okay. of full circle, sure. I, I think that it's really... I think this is one of the animating ideas, uh, you know, that inspired us as filmmakers in this story is, instead of treating this story as a symbol of whatever your politics are, and you know that is the beauty of this country that you are able to hold these conflicting you know in, intensely oppositional ideas but i think you know what the intention of the of the of the series is is to look at people as human beings to not treat them as symbols and to understand the nuance and the complexity of it and hopefully you know the goal i think and where we are as a society is we need less screaming arguments and more nuanced conversations about things because that's where the truth lies. It's always in or almost always in that gray area in between and finding that ability to both firmly um, hold a belief but hear somebody else and to do it with respect and love and humanity. Lee, thank you very much for your time and thoughts and insights. Um, So grateful to have had the chance to work with you on, on the series and on the podcast.
0: Well, thank you, Tiller. I'm really grateful to you and your whole crew for bearing witness to this important part of American history. Waco, American Apocalypse is a production of Netflix, Original Productions, and Tillerman Films. Producer is Jacob Miller. Executive producers are Tiller Russell, Brian Lovett, Jeff Hassler, and Jennifer Dugan. Edited by James Carroll. Special thanks to Lee Hancock.